place it comfortably. Morning everyone, on this sunny morning, I've noticed. Life is transient. Um, this talk today is based on a um, sutra of the Buddha, which is a rather um, playful one and instructive at the same time. And if you'd like to read more about it, you could read about it in one of Thich Nhat Hanh's books, uh, which is um, Cultivating the Mind of Love. But the sutra is the sutra on knowing the better way to catch a snake. And, of course, if I can just remind you on the better way to catch a snake, if you've never caught a snake, is um, you get a forked stick and you put it behind the, the snake's head and then once you've pinned it there, you can pick it up by the back of the head and then it can't bite you. <clears throat> but if you go into the bush and you see a snake and you try and grab it by the tail or whatever, it can turn around and, and bite you uh-huh. and get entangled with you. So the reason why the, um, the background apparently is to why the Buddha gave this sutra, and <coughs> whether this story is true or not or it's just been made up to make a point, who knows. But, but the story was that the Buddha gave um, uh, a talk on no self and, and emptiness. And, uh, and some monks misunderstood this to mean that there's no point in living and then they committed suicide. A pretty gross misunderstanding, but there you go. Whether it really happened or not, I don't know. But it's making a point. So what the Buddha was saying is that the, there are the teachings but they can be easily misunderstood. So therefore, knowing the better way to catch a snake. But he also gave an opposite point of view too, which is not so much about self-annihilation, but one um, monk who interpreted the Buddha's teachings that um, um, all kind of pleasure is not a, a hindrance to practice. Now, as Thich Nhat Hanh points out, um, in many countries in Southeast Asia, they, they tend to have this, some Buddhists tend to have this um, approach to life of being life-denying or, or sense-denying or pleasure-denying. And he, Thich Nhat Hanh quite frequently tries to correct those views. Um, there's nothing wrong with enjoying life, you know, enjoying pleasurable things. He points towards you know, enjoying the beauty of a flower, do you know, or the, the beauty in the architecture of a building, whatever. It's not about not enjoying it, it's about recognising that all things are transient. <laughs> that flower will die. The most beautiful person will get old and die. <laughs> so it's not about denying pleasure, but it's not about indulging it. So they're the two extremes in the way that Dharma teachings can be distorted in some way through a misunderstanding. <laughs> And what Thich Nhat Hanh emphasises too, which is in really, really consistent with our own Zen practice in the Ordinary Mind Zen School, is that ultimately we have to let go of all Buddhist teachings, whether they're true or not true. We have to not hold on to them tightly, we need to hold them lightly and let them go. Eventually we don't need them because they're not teachings from the outside anymore. We're We've embodied it, but eventually, all Buddhists teach words, whether they're true words that point in the right direction or misunderstanding. They're all words. Uh-huh. We need to get beyond that. 
But my question around this is how do we relate this teaching to our current age in which we live, which is quite frequently referred to now as a narcissistic age? So how do we, how do we address it within our life and times now, not just back there, you know, 2,500 years ago? It came to my attention yesterday that there is a new book coming out this year, but it hasn't been released yet. It's, it's in August, I realised. And um, it's called Mindlessness, The Corruption of Mindfulness in a Culture of Narcissism. And it's by Thomas Joyner, and it's coming out through Oxford Press in August this year. And uh, if it comes, if it's there, the publishers, it's most likely a substantial book. And I can't wait to read it. <laughs> it just says it in a nutshell. Um, uh, a lot of things I've been um, banging on about for about five years about how mindfulness can be corrupted. Um, but anyway, I'll try to practice patience later <laughs> August. Um, how might we be corrupting mindfulness in a culture of corruption? One, one way it could be distorted, um, as I was making reference to in those few words when we were sitting this morning, is to pre be preoccupied with own, one's own peace and happiness. The kind of question behind it being, what am I going to get out of this and how long will it take? Mm -hmm. Now, when I talk to other Zen teachers um, and I have um, email internet exchanges with them as well, everyone says this is a... Particularly teachers in America that I'm in, in connection with say this is a a question or an attitude that comes up quite frequently when new people come to Zen centres. What am I going to get out of it and how long will it take? Mm -hmm. And um, as other Zen teachers say, or I've said too, is that this is a teaching to us as teachers. Mm -hmm. It's a challenge to us to go to even deeper levels of forbearance and patience. Mm -hmm. I even go back to my uh, original teachings as a, in Christianity in school. God help me. <laughs> <laughs> but it almost makes you want to roll your eyes when you get that response. You know, it's like it's, you can realise this person's approaching Dharma practice from a, um, from a misunderstanding, and it's a misunderstanding that's understandable considering the context in which they've grown up and the, and the consumerism in which we grow up with. But it's like, a, that, that's the approach. It's coming in not with the right approach. Um, <clears throat> it happens sometimes that I um, get people um, referred to come along to see me to this group who've completed um, secular mindfulness courses, you know, um, to do with depression, anxiety and pain and so on. And I've noticed often those people um, come along with that attitude. They either actually say the words or it's in the manner in which they come along. And <clears throat> in a sense I wonder whether they've really come to the, the right place. Mm -hmm. Because it's a different type of teaching here. But even if you do suffer from depression and anxiety, which touches all of us to one degree or another, um, 
sometimes the best ways that we deal with those forms of suffering is, is to not get caught up in being preoccupied with it in a self-centred way. Um, it's not a matter of that sort of harsh approach where you know, you've got to pull yourself up by your bootstraps and you know, forget and just get on with it. It's not that approach at all, that harsh approach. But um, there was a, a Japanese psychiatrist of the name of Marita who was a Zen practitioner who developed a form of therapy to deal with depression and anxiety called Marita therapy. And I'm, I'm not doing it justice by, by simplifying it in this way, but the basic philosophy of it was, if you're anxious or depressed, just accept that you are. Like, just lovingly accept you are and get on with your life. So being, thinking about it, being, being preoccupied, how you're going to get rid of it and so on, feeds it. It's like, but if you gently accept that's just the way you are and that's part of the human condition, and then, then your focus goes towards the outside things you want to do in life or the outside relationships, then at least you'll manage it much more effectively. One of the other ways that, um, that uh, we might be corrupting mindfulness or Zen practice in a culture of narcissism is to do, follows on from that one. And it's about relationships, whether it's, whether it's um, committed relationships, family, neighbourhood, community, meditation groups, larger groups. Often the narcissistic position is, um, um, what can I get out of this rather than what am I going to give to it? And uh, Robert Aitken, who was my um, first Zen teacher that I was with for many years, was um, grew up in the time of um, as an American during um, President John Kennedy's presidency, and he was fond of um, quoting um, John Kennedy, who made this famous statement: "Don't ask." What your country can do for you, can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. And John Kennedy was well known for having developed a lot of humanitarian programs. You know that they offered to third world countries. Fast forward to the current incumbent, the White House, mm -hmm. and you shift from that kind of attitude of that era which is a merge to someone who's been referred by many in the media as a quite a thin-skinned narcissist. Now, what I want to say about that is not just to project onto Donald Trump or that narcissism. The thing you've got to remember is that he was democratically elected and it's a reflection of the narcissism in that Western culture, which is there in our own, that someone like that gets to be the most powerful politician in the world. He's a reflection of us. It's not he's just projecting onto him how bad he is. He's a reflection of us and our culture. We get the leaders we deserve because we elect them. So it's no where this goes off the rails with everyone talking about everyone else as a narcissist is that it misses the point of what Dharma practice is. And the point of Dharma practice is not to point the finger at everyone else about how narcissistic they are. It's, what about me? It, spiritual practice has always started with this first recognition of our own 
correct self-preoccupation and self-centeredness. That's why the, the first words of our practice principles are caught in the self-centered dream. That's where it starts. If we don't recognize that, we go off on the wrong track. Um, now, it's an unpleasant truth to have to come to that recognition, but it doesn't have to be a harsh truth. And again, if we go back to the, the Buddha's um, sutra about the better way to catch a snake, if you recognize the snake of narcissism within you, metaphorically, then the wrong ways to deal with that would be to judge yourself harshly. That'd be like the monk suiciding, right? The modern day version of it. Self-critical, harsh. Mm -hmm. um, the other alternative would be just to be self-indulgent. You know, just keeping on being as self-indulgent as you have been through life and keep it going and trying to do a mindfulness practice at the same time and wondering why it's not getting anywhere. That would be a mistake as well. Um, but you know, the, the way, the whole approach to the way narcissism is being written about by, in pop psychology as well as by professionals, you just have to look at the, um, the titles of the books that come out to give you an indication. I wrote them down here before. When you love a man who loves himself is one title. Mm -hmm. Ten signs that you are in a relationship with a narcissist. Five sneaky things that narcissists do to take advantage of you. And the last one, the narcissist next door. They're all out there. Okay, funny about that. Yeah. I was I felt quite amused when I thought, what if two neighbours bought the same book? <laughs> you know, the narcissist next door. But that, see, they, they're the kind of books that sell, you know. No one wants to buy a book about how they actually might be an answer. They wouldn't sell, you know. Wouldn't get off the ground. Um, but, seriously, coming back to the nature of Dharma practice, that's where we start. It's an unpleasant truth to have to recognise, but then you go, well, everyone's in the same boat. And if you're not judging yourself harshly for it, um, and you're not just continuing just to indulge that narcissism, then there's a way forward. Mm. That's the better way to catch a snake. And maybe the best way of approaching that, if I can give an analogy, and, and those of you who, who um, are or have been mothers and fathers would know this much better than I do, not being a parent, but, but say you've got a two-year-old, you know, who's who wants this and wants this and demanding and so on, and you love that child, you're not going to hit them or, or be harsh with them, but you're going to be firm with them, you know, and guide them into being a wise, mature adult by, by, by redirecting that, that narcissism. And that's the same way that we need to approach ourselves around it. Um, Freud talked about primary narcissism and secondary narcissism. Primary narcissism is what all children have. They all want to survive. It's all about me. It's all about when I'm going to be fed next, you know, when I'm going to be cuddled next or touched or soothed or whatever. That's, that's normal human behaviour. Um, but secondary narcissism is what grows out of many different, you know, difficult conditions. Um, 
and that's what we need to deal with and that's what we need to address in Dharma practice. So, the better way to catch a snake. How do we apply that to our current life as it is and how do we apply it to my practice? Thank you.